to be curiously of a child special mega interview edition <laughs> so on our last episode we spoke about warren delary who was the pioneer in astrophotography and um, whilst researching that episode i came across a gentleman called andrew mccarthy who is a astrophotographer and he actually does this all in his backyard in arizona america but he gets amazing results, doesn't he, Anton? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen some really cool images. Um, and he's on Instagram, I think, at cosmic underscore background. That's right. And he's got his own website, which is cosmicbackground.io. Um, so I emailed him and um, asked if I could have a talk about his brilliant photos. And he said yes. And we've got a really good interview coming up with him. We are joined by Andrew McCarthy, um, and you are an astrophotographer, I believe. So would you like to introduce yourself, please? Uh, sure. I'm Andrew McCarthy. Uh, as Rick said, I am a astrophotographer. So I spend my nights uh, with a telescope in my backyard trying to capture photographs of celestial bodies. Brilliant. Oh, hello. I can see a dog behind you as well. Uh, yeah, that, that's Bailey. Hi, Usually doing these sort of things, I close the door, but uh, the door had to be painted, so it's off right now. Okay, no and worries. So she is going to she is going to steal some attention. I know <laughs> the real star of the show is here now. <laughs> yeah, so um, I actually came across um, your a recent photo that you took of the sun um, because we did an episode on Wallen Delary, um, who was a he was a pioneer in astrophotography. Um, and he designed the first ever instrument specifically designed for photographing the sun. Um, then when I was researching that, I think I, I was opening up a new tab and it suggests websites to look at. And your, uh, there's an article about your photo of the sun came up. Um, I think Fire and Fury, you call it. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. I've got to have a look at this. It's kind of perfect for what we've been covering recently. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that photo? Kind of how do you how do you do it? I mean, how long does it take? What's the process? Oh, sure. Uh, that one, that one took a while just because my atmosphere wasn't really uh, cooperating very well. I need to shoot under you know, pretty good conditions in order to get uh, to get the data I need to get these mm. kinds of images. And uh, th- that particular day, there was some high altitude turbulence that was happening. I could see it in my um, in my camera. Um, and that it almost makes it look like the subject is going in and out of focus. Okay. So it was doing that. I would get about you know two thirds of the way through all of my shots, which you know takes you know thirty to forty five minutes, uh, and then the conditions would just get terrible. It would last that way uh, for a long time until you know it started picking back up again. But by then, uh, between the rotation of the sun and the changes on the surface, means I have to start all over again. Okay. Yeah. So I did that for that particular image. I had to do that three. Uh, different times so I captured far more data than I usually do and it took far for longer than I usually do but I persevered as you can see mm-hmm. um, uh, so that in particular image I think I was shooting for maybe three or four hours uh, mm-hmm. and processing probably took another 12 hours on top of wow. that. Okay. Uh, a lot of the processing is automated um, as is a lot of the a lot of the image acquisition is automated as well uh, but it's you know it's all assembled there in the software and then creates the image that you see um so if you like more details into how how that's done i'm happy to go into that too i, I don't know how verbose you want me to be here <laughs> yeah why, why not i mean we're happy to uh yeah go into more details for sure and understand the uh, process and what equipment you're using yeah sure uh, so the uh the telescope i use is uh is modified and that's really important uh d- distinction here to make is you never ever want to point a telescope at the sun um, unless you really know what you're doing, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just like, you know, holding a magnifying glass up and, you know, you can fry ants with it if you, if you're a psycho, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but with a, a telescope, um, you're, you're, it's essentially the same exact thing, uh, just with more elements, uh, you know, some more lenses inside that, inside that tube. Uh, but it's still focusing the sun's heat in a very small area. Because of that, if I were to just put a camera, uh, you know, at the focal point, it would just fry the camera. The camera would catch on fire, literally. Wow. Uh, if, if my eye was there, it would cook my eye. That's why it's so important to yeah. say, don't point a telescope at the sun because you will go blind. Um, so my telescope has been modified and it was modified by attaching a um, an energy rejection filter and it filters out 
unnecessary ultraviolet and infrared light uh, that I can't see and it's not part of the image I take anyway. So I don't want its energy hitting, getting into that telescope because it will just create more heat. Is that um, like a glass lens or something then which just focuses yeah, exactly. or, or diffuses it, that part of the yeah, spectrum? Yeah, it's, like it's, it's like a little filter. I've got filters in here I can show you, for example. It looks just like this. Okay, um, yeah. Just like a, a little filter like this that, that threads onto the uh, the end of the next stage, which is a hydrogen alpha filter. Okay. Um, what I'm the the filters I have to use are have to be very precisely tuned. Um, there's hydrogen alpha filters that are commonly used for astronomy uh, that are for shooting uh, nebulas. Mm -hmm. Nebulae emit a lot of light in the hydrogen alpha spectrum. Um, it's just uh, you know, it's why it's why most nebulae are red. In fact, um, the sun also, of course, emits hydrogen alpha light, but um, but it's really uh, abundant in the solar chromosphere. So the solar chromosphere can be can be seen with the details of the atmosphere uh, if you use hydrogen alpha filters. But it has to let in a very very narrow band pass of light. So the, the interesting thing about uh, about elements, like in this case hydrogen, is it burns in a very narrow uh, emission line. Mm -hmm. So as opposed to uh, you know you turn on a light bulb, um, a light bulb emits in all uh, emission lines. So it it appears white for that reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's just it's just shooting out across all uh, across the entire electromagnetic spectrum. It's shooting out, uh, you know, hopefully not ultraviolet, but it's shooting out. <laughs> blue light, green light, red light, it all combines together to make white light. Um, the sun does the same exact thing. Um, you know, but however, there's little slices of that emission line that are stronger and can be isolated um, to see details in the atmosphere. Um, and the hydrogen spectrum is extremely narrow. It's like, it's like a laser thin as far as its representation on the electromagnetic spectrum. And by the way, if you want a clarification on any of this stuff, please let me know. I know I can like I can sound like a cyborg, but I'm like <laughs> no, no, stuff, no so. problem. <laughs> so that'd be um, sorry, like um, when people are trying to find exoplanets now, and they're trying to work out what the atmosphere is. Is it similar to that, where they're looking at the color of the light coming um, back to see what yeah, chemicals? Yeah. It, it's very similar to that because what you're looking at is the is the spectral lines of that object. So mm -hmm. you're if you have a a planet that has you know like a really strong signature and like sulfur. For example, you know, yeah. sulfur has a color associated with it. Uh, you'd be like, "All right, there's sulfur in the atmosphere." Um, you know, it's more commonly used to determine the age of stars because you can detect the presence of heavy elements in stars uh, if there's you know more of an abundance of certain colors of light in the star. You know that it's getting later in its life cycle and might go supernova soon because it's starting to produce heavy elements. Yeah. Um, so yeah, exactly the 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 light that's coming off the object really is the only way we can uh, study the object um, you know especially um, you know especially objects like like distant stars and planets that are point light sources you get no surface details you don't have the ability to to just take a photo of it and say oh that's clearly a rocky planet or that's clearly mm -hmm. a gassy planet because I can see it by the way it is it's entirely done through studying its mass studying its um, uh, the, the, the emission lines, um, and those are all products, of course, the way it sends light back to us. Yeah, that's amazing, um, actually, what we can just tell from that. It's incredible what we can deduce. You know, it's, and this is going off on a tangent here, okay. but I just find this such a cool fact that I like sharing with everybody. Uh, did you know that you can actually detect exoplanets yourself, even with just like a normal point-and-shoot camera? Like I have a, no. I have a DSLR right here. Uh -huh. Pretty nor pretty normal looking camera. You know, it's for um, just all purpose photography. Mine's been modified for use with astrophotography. But by just pointing a DSLR and a decent lens up at the stars, you can actually discover uh, discover exoplanets. That's pretty uh, cool. By by capturing photos over and over and over again of stars and seeing if their brightness uh, dims a little bit. If it dims a little bit, even if it's by like you know 0.1% over a period of time, we know that a gas giant perhaps was transiting that planet. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, we've now detected an exoplanet. So amateurs are able to do it, even with just like simple equipment. It doesn't take NASA and you know billion dollars, 
you know, budget uh, of equipment to do it. So, so you're absolutely right. It's an incredible age for astronomy. Um, and that, that's one of the reasons right there. It's really cool for backyard astronomers. Um, I just take, I just take pretty pictures. I'm not <laughs> doing real science here. Right. Um, but there's people doing real science in their backyards, just as a hobby. They're discovering things. They're discovering exoplanets. They're discovering faint galaxies. Uh, they're discovering uh, nebulae that are in our solar system that professionals haven't discovered. So it's it's really cool that um, that we're living this age now. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. Um, actually, speaking of the uh, nebulae, there was um, I think it was on your Twitter. I saw it where you had a video. I think showing how you were lifting the colors out. So. Um, I guess when you're taking the picture, there's so little light coming in that you've got to, in Photoshop, whatever you use, you're kind of bringing that out. Is that correct? Well, uh, there's there's a lot of misconceptions that come around color and space. Uh -huh. um, oh, it, well, one of them, I, you know, I get this criticism a lot. They, they, they ask, well, where's the color come from? I was told space is black and white. Like, space is in no way black and white. Um, you know, as I mentioned, nebulae, they're mostly hydrogen, so they burn very red. Obviously, red is a color. Um, <laughs> yeah. We have uh, there's reflection nebula uh, that are blue, and they're blue because they are scattering light the same way our atmosphere does. Mm -hmm. um, so, so they're as they scatter, shorter wavelengths scatter the most, so it turns this cloud of gas into blue light. Uh, there's also dark nebula that are clearly brown. They clearly looked like dust um, when you're when you you go in there and shoot them for long enough, you can bring out the color in them. They're like this orangish brown, uh, brownish color. Um, so space that, so that being said, space is very colorful. So where did this misconception come from? Um, the misconception in one way is our unit of measuring these objects is our eyes. And our eyes are very limited. So if I were to travel to one of these nebulas, um, you know, I wouldn't see it like I would in one of my pictures because while the nebula is very colorful, it's also very faint. These objects are, you know, it's like it's like trying to read something when it's pitch black and you're, you're staring at a piece of paper trying to make trying to make out the words. Um, it's it's using uh, you know different a different part of your retinas. You know, we have the the rods and the cones in your yeah your retina. One of them is for picking up uh, discerning detail and color, and the other one is for detecting things in low light uh, and has no uh, it can't, can't produce sharp images and can't uh, produce color. So. So because of this, if you're looking at something faint, it's harder to see details and it's pretty much impossible to see color. Uh, so, and you can test this yourself, go outside and you know, it's a practically a full moon out there right now, go outside and try to figure out what color your shirt is in the moonlight. Yeah, it just disappears. Uh, yeah, the color just disappears. Yeah. Um, and that's not because of the light, that's because of your eyes. Mm. Because if you were to take a camera and do a long exposure of you in that dim light, you would see all the colors on your shirt are still there. It's just your eyes that aren't that aren't dis discerning them. Um, so yeah, there is a bit of a misconception when it comes to color in space, um, and that is if you are using your eyes as the arbiter of truth, then space is mostly gray because your eyes aren't seeing it that way. Uh, but as we we know, cameras don't operate the same way your eyes do. So when I capture the photos, the colors are there; they're absolutely there. And what you were seeing in that Twitter post was uh, the raw stacks of images. Um, the raw stacks of images actually usually just look like uh, a couple stars and mostly black space. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if, if I captured my data properly. When I'm, uh, and there's a, there's a few ways to approach astrophotography. There is a, uh, a, a somewhat of a lazier approach, I will say, where um, you simply take your camera, you point it at the object you want to see, and you take as long of an exposure as your camera will allow. If it's on a tracking mount, you're able to expose for longer. And if you do it right, you see all you see the colors and you see the, the nebula right there in the preview window of your camera. So if I took the picture, I'd be able to see it right in the back the moment I took it, just like any other picture. Mm -hmm. However, if I'm trying to capture uh, you know, a very faint target and I'm trying to spend as much time as possible to make the picture as good as possible, I actually don't want to do that. I would have I would consider an image like that overexposed. What I would do instead is I expose to make sure that none of my stars are too large because then they get very bloated and they kind of overwhelm the scene. Mm -hmm. um, and I take many photos just like that. So at, at the end, I may have 20 hours worth of exposures, uh, but the image still looks completely black. 
However, the fidelity of the image is so, is, is so good, it's the 32-bit image, that by applying histogram adjustments and brightening it, the object just comes into view. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the colors come with it because the colors are uh, already there. Um, sometimes I do shoot with a monochrome camera, uh, which is where some of these other, um, uh, I, I would say like misinterpretations of color and space come from. By using a monochrome camera, I actually have larger pixels that are capable of collecting more light. Mm -hmm. So to get the color, I actually have to cycle through filters. I cycle through red, green, and blue filters, combine those okay. images, yes. yep. and that gives me color. It's all true color. I didn't add it. I didn't go in and arbitrarily like just just add colors to it. Uh, it's all still there. But then sometimes I can boost saturation. I, I, I'm just in the pretty picture business. So I'm, I, I boost colors and stuff. I, I do all that kind of stuff too. But the color is there to start. Yeah, with. yeah, it, yeah. It's all based off uh, the reality of whatever you're photographing. And okay, maybe you're enhancing it a bit for, yeah, like you're saying, to make a more beautiful image. Uh, people do that with landscape shots. Exactly, that's, exactly. That's not, that's not unique to space in any way. Um, uh, but but there's actually another side to this, and that's when it comes to false color images. And actually, my image of the sun is a good example. That's a false color image. Okay. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I was shooting in a very narrow emission line. Uh, just the hydrogen alpha light was entering my scope. That light is a very distinct pinkish red. It just looks it's and it's very flat. There's no color variation to it whatsoever, uh, which makes for a very boring image. Uh, because there's no color depth to it, there's actually no point in shooting it in color uh, because I can just as easily capture it in monochrome and then assign that color value to it in processing. And that would actually, I would consider be a true color image because it's, it's, it's portraying exactly with the light that was entering the camera. However, that light is so filtered that that's still, still not an accurate representation of what the sun looks like. The sun is actually just white. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's white, it emits an all spectrum. So if I filter it, uh, it's by definition false color because I filter out all those other other colors. Mm -hmm. uh, then I can really just do whatever I want with the image if I want to make it whatever color I want. So I usually do blue background with like orange on the surface because I think that's what people expect to see the sun to look like. Um, they expect to see it looking hot and red. Um, so those those colors with my sun images are somewhat arbitrarily added. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to deep space where that's actually, I mean, there's real colors there. Um, there's also false color that's done in deep space, which is, um, it's, there's something called Hubble palette that's applied to nebulas, which allows you to resolve more details just by remapping some of the colors. Yes. Um, I, I actually, uh, I, I got a copy of your, uh, recent picture of the sun, um, which I liked it so much. So I'm going to be getting that printed oh, out you. and put on the wall. Um, is it like, like you're saying you, you're going there for something that's kind of a, a mix between, um, a beautiful image and also trying to pull in as much accuracy as you can, it seems, um, in your photography. Absolutely. So I'm not really, I'm not as hung up on accuracy, I would say, because when it comes, like, like I said, I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm more of a, I'm more of a hobbyist enthusiast. Uh, you could say my stuff falls in category more of art than science. Yeah. Um, but everything that I'm portraying is accurate in the sense that, yeah, those swirls of plasma, the, uh, the, the prominences, the, the the that texture, that's all real, really there. Um, it's all really there, and I try to capture it as accurately as I can, and then I try to turn that data into an aesthetic image, and that's where more of some of the processing comes into play. Like my decision to make the background blue and the the sun orange. That's that's a decision I make. It's not something that was captured. Okay. Yeah. Um, some of my uh, some of my images are actually processed differently. If you I'm not sure if you venture into my post history, but you'll see like I've done magenta sun. I've done yes. uh, the, the, a red sun with a with a black background. I've, I've done all kinds of different processing approaches. Um, but so there's, yeah, it's like I said, it's a little bit arbitrary, but uh, but I think it's it makes for some cool images. And my goal here really is just to get people excited about space. I, I, I think if we just bring more attention to how beautiful our universe is, the world would be a better place. So. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's kind of a, an entry for people into, uh, yeah, into starting to enjoy and understand and maybe look at space more. So it seems that um, it, it, you say you're an amateur, but it seems you've got a good knowledge and understanding of uh, space as well. So is that something you've always had or...? 
Is it when you started doing more for the photos that you got the scientific knowledge? Uh, well, I would say I thought I knew a lot about space until about five years ago. Um, so, you know, like a lot of kids, I had a huge curiosity of space. I grew up watching Star Trek, uh, loved Star Trek. Uh, and uh, you, you, there's, it's the science of space um, is very unyielding. Um, there is laws of physics that have to be followed. And when you take in media about space, it doesn't always respect those laws. Um, you know, things like gravity. <laughs> uh, gravity works a very specific way. Uh, orbits work a very specific way. So mm -hmm. I think I had a very inaccurate view of how space worked until maybe about five years ago. Um, I didn't really even fully understand like what an orbit was or why astronauts are weightless, for example. A lot of people don't realize it, but the astronauts are weightless because they're in free fall. It's yeah, not yeah. because there's no, there's no, there's gravity in space. You know, where the, where the space station is, is about 90% Earth's gravity. It's still pulling on them. Yeah. Um, you know, they're simply floating because they're happening to be moving sideways fast enough. They, they don't hit the earth when they land. Yeah. It's like if you made a massive tower as tall as the uh, ISS, and then you were to stand in that tower, you wouldn't be floating. You would, you'd feel the gravity. It's, yeah, exactly. You're fooling and You'd missing. Stand there, <laughs> and then the ISS would fly by you at seventeen thousand miles an yeah. hour and probably scare you. <laughs> That'd be a pretty good uh, sight. <laughs> I don't think you'd see it. I think you'd see a little bright in the distance, and then it'd be pff, yeah, gone, be gone. In the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> cool. Um, actually, um, just thinking of your photos, please. Uh, I think you've done some of lunar eclipses, haven't you? Before. Oh yeah, I love shooting the lunar eclipse. Yeah. Um, one great thing about the lunar eclipse, you can see it from one entire half of the planet usually mm. uh, as opposed to the solar eclipse where if it's not happening in your area you're kind of out of luck yeah definitely yeah <laughs> so i've shot many lunar eclipses from my backyard uh-huh there's something i heard where um with a solar eclipse because the moon is such a perfect size to cover the sun um they're saying that if there were aliens it'd be something that they come and look at for sightseeing It'd be one of those spectacles where nowhere else is there something where there's going to be a moon, say, perfectly covering uh, the sun and just having this little fringe around it. So I really love that idea. I think that would make Earth some prime real estate for that reason. Yeah, definitely. But what's funny about eclipses is if you are in the business of interstellar space travel, eclipses become very ordinary because they'll just happen constantly as you're passing celestial bodies you'll see eclipses you'll see the sunset on strange planets um you know i i was thinking about that when um i i, I look through uh, uh something called stellarium are you familiar with stellarium it's like a computer software that tells you exactly where all the celestial bodies are going okay. to be at any given point in time and i like to play around with that just to see if there's anything interesting coming up and one of the interesting things that I saw was uh, if you're standing on Uranus, you can see Saturn and its moons transiting the sun. Oh, wow. Uh, and it's happening like 60 years, I think, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and I was thinking, what a cool celestial event to see Saturn in front of the sun. Yeah. Uh, and I was thinking to myself, you know what? In that time, we might actually have people out there if we keep developing the space program to see this unique event. Uh, and and things like that actually get me really excited for the future of space travel, just because the uh, the artist in me wants to see those things. Um, but uh, but but yeah, it's 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 amazing these vantages that are on different planets that we have no concept of. Um, you know, there's eclipses that happen on Mars all the time. Yeah. Uh, and the the rovers actually captured one. <laughs> you see the potato shaped moon. I think it was Phobos was right over the sun. So you see, like basically a baked potato covering mm -hmm. part of the sun <laughs> That's uh, but it's but it happens everywhere um and look at how beautiful the view is if you've seen that um that image that circulates says it's one of the most beautiful images in existence it's saturn backlit by the sun um and the the sun lights up the rings mm -hmm. uh, while the planet's in shadow and it looks incredible but i realized that view actually happens constantly from the vantage point of Saturn's moons. Of course, yeah. Yeah, as they're orbiting, yeah. Yep. Because Saturn's moons are actually also tidally locked. So, uh -huh. you know, they're, you're, you have Saturn in your sky constantly, you know, in some fixed position in the sky, and then you'd see the sun just drop behind it, 
and then exit, uh, depending on, you know, to actually last a really long time, because depending on uh, the, depending on the orbit of Saturn. Um, so let's see, well, actually, what's a day on Saturn? 14 hours, something like that. I, I actually know. don't remember <laughs> off the top of my head. So I guess it, it would be pretty fast, but yeah, it'd be pretty cool to see regardless. Yeah, there'd be some view looking up and seeing a massive planet kind of just, yeah, rotating above you. I joke that one of my favorite things in the world to see would be uh, a Titan, the uh, view of Saturn rising on Titan through the clouds. Yeah, magical. Go ahead. I, I interrupted you. Sorry. Have you seen anything that you can't explain? Maybe like aliens or something? <laughs> <laughs> I always ask this question. Everybody always wants to know. It's like, yeah. where are the aliens? Uh, you know, there, there's some things I haven't been able to explain, but I have likely explanations for them. Uh, if you follow my feed, there's one that I posted a couple months ago where it looked like a fleet of something was moving across the sun. There was like, oh, I've seen that. Six, yes. Yeah. There was like six or seven, like little black dots. And of course, everybody's first thought is, Oh, it's probably just a flock of birds. Uh -huh. But I actually, I did the math on the shot and I was like, they would have to be incredibly high altitude. Cause I, you know, I was thinking about the birds that migrate through my area. And my first thought was, Oh, it's probably just a flock of geese. And I was like, well, if there were geese, it would have to be something like eight miles up <laughs> wow. to, to show up as that big on my cameras. So I was like, there's no way. And then I immediately was like, there's no way those are, those are any kind of birds because, you know, even smaller birds would still have to be pretty high up. And my understanding at the time was that smaller birds didn't go as high altitude. Um, however, I had since been proven wrong on that. <laughs> I got some bird experts on that thread. They're like, no, you can get some, you know, like crows can migrate like pretty high up oh, okay, um, or mm. anything from their, from their family. Uh, and, and I think I did the math. I was like, okay, if it's, if it's about the size of a crow and it's about a mile up, it actually works. So that's probably what it was. Uh, but at first I was like, I really don't know what it is. It, it, it did look like the objects were flapping <laughs> like a, like a yeah. bird would, but the atmosphere is distorts things. It makes everything, uh, it makes single dots look like they're, they're flapping, which obviously they're not. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, as a result, I, I, I said, this is truly a UFO because I have no idea what it is. Yeah. 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 Um, I frequently see things cross the surface of the moon as well. Mm. Uh, you know, little black dots will just move across the moon and they're not satellites. I know they're not satellites because of their speed and size. Um, all I can think is, you know, some kid lost a balloon and happened to float <laughs> between me and my telescope. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's not that, maybe it's aliens. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> uh, but I really, I really don't know, and it's that's why that's why they're UFOs because yeah. I can't identify them. Yeah, um, and they're, they're not. Um, they're, I would say the chances of them being of alien origin are very, very slim. They could be. But I doubt I'm gonna be the one that discovers it. If it's, <laughs> I just I have little telescopes, and they're not working all the time. They're usually pointed at the moon. People yeah. that are discovering things, they have telescopes that are doing uh, full sky surveys, uh, you know, to 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 see everywhere they can, and they're they're gathering on a lot of lights. So they can see objects that are faint. If we had a craft visit Earth, it would probably do it from a safe distance, you know, like a million miles away. Um, the, the orbit of the moon is only a quarter million miles away, by the way, uh, 400,000 ish kilometers. Uh, <laughs> I always try to use both so I can, uh, appeal to, to every country that's, uh, that, that's listening to me. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, so, so if, if these, if some aliens were to come visit us, they'd be way outside the range of my, my gear. Um, mm -hmm. I can't, I can't resolve anything that's, um, that's manufactured on the moon, for example. I can't, I can't spot the rover. I can't spot the uh, the, the LEM descent stage. Uh, you know, it's only about what thirty-one feet across. Um, you've got or nine meters. It's it's so small that it would take a telescope the size of a football field to see our spacecraft on the moon. So, if an alien spacecraft were to visit us, I imagine them understanding you know, the technology to, to travel here, they would also understand what it would take to remain from being seen. And they mm. wouldn't, wouldn't want to be seen. Yeah, and if, so you're, if they're out have, in space, sorry, if they're out in space, there's not going to be much light on them either. Unless they... Well, they would be in direct sunlight. Mm. They would be in direct sunlight. Everything's in direct sunlight in yeah, space. Unless you're, yeah. you're shadowed by something. 
So that's one of the ways I'm able to actually rule out objects um, that I see that are either illuminated or in shadow is I can determine their altitude based on where Earth's shadow is. Oh, okay. Something, yeah. something that's very far away is almost always going to be illuminated and have, unless it happens to be dead on in the path of Earth's shadow, like, for example, the moon during a lunar eclipse. Yeah, uh, yeah I think the James Webb telescope is going to sit in the shadow of the Earth as well to keep it cool. Yeah, the mm. James Webb's amazing. Excited yeah. for that. <laughs> but, uh, James Webb would actually be a good candidate to detect an alien ship. And the reason for that is not only just because it's massive, so you can get an incredible angular resolution, but it's also very sensitive to infrared light. And my thoughts are on an alien ship is it would be very, they would try to disguise it from us as much as they can. But no matter how much you disguise something, you're going to have some kind of faint infrared emission that will mm -hmm. come out. Yeah, uh, faint infrared emission is James Webb's specialty, so it'll be able to see aliens. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> when we turn it on, we realize we're being watched. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I dream about that kind of discovery, but um, th there's I, I, I'm skeptical that we'll see something like that, but uh, but it could happen. Yeah, that could happen. Uh, the, the Fermi the Fermi paradox is uh, very overarching. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um you know if if something if something existed i think we would would have detected it if it's within like our galaxy for example i i mean we should even be able to detect it in other galaxies eh, maybe <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah unless they're uh so far advanced their technology is just something that we they do. It's like the idea somebody could have invented um radio in the 1700s and be communicating and Nobody else would know about it because they don't even comprehend or are able to pick up that technology. So who knows? You know, I think about the limitations of radio waves. Radio waves travel at the speed of light, which is really handy if you're on Earth and trying to talk to somebody. But if you're aliens that are trying to communicate across an entire galaxy, radio waves would be a horrible choice. So, you know, I'm thinking about things that, you know, break the laws of physics. <laughs> That, yeah. that would be preferred choice of communication. So we wouldn't be able to detect something like that. Um, you know, if, if the communication follows our known forms, what our understanding of physics is, it'd be absolutely terrible to use for any kind of like intergalactic colonizers. Um, but there may not be a solution though. So and if that's if that's true, you send somebody off into another galaxy to colonize it, you know you're never seeing them again. Yeah. <laughs> in bye fact, bye. by the time they get there, not they're not even going to be the same species as you because it'll take millions of years to get there if they're traveling at the speed of light. And you know, by then you gotta think about what were humans millions of years ago? What, yeah. we were shrews or something? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we looked completely different <laughs> millions of years ago. So who knows what we'll look like in a couple million years from now. Uh-huh. Particularly, yeah. Uh, just life aboard a spaceship for that long as well i mean that's going to change you quite a lot <laughs> maybe we're um humans um coming back in time from the future and that's what <laughs> aliens are <laughs> maybe you know we can only obviously theorize about where life came from on earth and what humans actually are uh there's obviously a ton of data that supports our current understanding of things but, you know, as far as what seeded life, we actually could have started on Mars and yeah. uh, impact on Mars launched microbial life on Mars to Earth and then seeded life here. Um, there's we could have alien origin. You know, it's 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 entirely plausible. And, uh, you, you know, that's that's why I really love what we're doing. We're, you know, sending rovers to you know, ancient riverbeds on Mars to you know, dig through the soil and see if there's any evidence of anything, because. You know, if we do find any kind of microbial life on Mars, that instantly changes our view of the universe. Um, it's it means that life is now potentially abundant. Yeah, that'd be because so cool. either either Martian life seeded us, or we seeded Martian life. Both of those things are possible. Um, or life simply happens everywhere there's an opportunity for it, um, and <laughs> that would be just incredible. Yeah. Mm. Well, if you look at the Earth and like hydrothermal vents and different extinction events through history and how every time it seems to have um, life has managed and sort of flourished again. So I think something I heard the other day where even in the clean rooms that um, on a satellite has to go through the rovers where there's going to be no foreign life in there, um, there's a new type of bacteria that's been found that just lives in clean rooms <laughs> and the things are being sent up into space. So uh, it's, it's incredible. 
it will try and live everywhere it can. It's highly adaptable too. It will actually evolve to its environment. So if you have, you know, a system for disinfecting a clean room and making sure there's no bad, uh, <laughs> no, uh, no bacteria in there, there's going to be little guys that survive. Yeah. <laughs> and those, those guys are going to now pass on their genetics to their offspring. Uh, that are also going to be resistant to your or to your disinfectants. Um, you know, it's that's why you know chasing antibiotics, you know, with with infections and stuff can be hard because you end up with just the surviving bacteria that's that's hardened to your method of sterilization. Yes, yeah, uh, and that'll apply to space too. You know, maybe we end up, you know, with a series of organisms that just thrives on just eating the sunlight. And, <laughs> Um, just enjoys the the vacuum of space. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not a biologist, but mm-hmm. it seems plausible to me. And uh, you know, for that reason, I wouldn't be surprised if there is life in extreme in extreme areas, like on the sun, for example. Uh, it it could happen because there's if there's an abundance of energy, in theory, life is possible. It just wouldn't necessarily reflect what you think yeah. uh, life should look like. Uh, but but the energy. You know, if there's any kind of energy output, there's something there to create life, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's take advantage of it, definitely. Um, hmm. We've gone off some on some fun tangents. That's great. <laughs> I, I love these tangents. Yeah, yeah, it's good. <laughs> if you could take a photograph of anything, what do you think it would be? Oh, gosh. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I said earlier, Saturn through the clouds mm-hmm. of Titan. Like I can picture myself, you know, if, you know, inner, inner, uh, interplanetary colonization was a thing setting up on a cliffside in Titan and watching Saturn on the horizon, the clouds drifting through it and maybe capturing an eclipse as the sun went behind Saturn. Yeah. I think that would be my shot right there. Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, uh, I wouldn't mind visiting a black hole and getting a picture of that too. Our own black hole picture that we got. I mean, it's very amazing, but it's like, I want to see some details. Yeah, it's the same. It's mm-hmm. just a few orange and yellow pixels. It's like, amazing, but I, I need more. <laughs> oh, that picture was more about validation yeah. than anything else. Just validating that we understood how how they form, how they look. And, uh, but to, to actually visit it and see that accretion disk and, and be able to really see the way that gravity is warping light, uh, that is that would be incredible to see. Uh, just understanding you're in front of something that's just so incredibly powerful. Um, and it's incredibly simple too. It's, you know, one of the most powerful things we can observe. And all it is, is just a bunch of matter in one spot. Yeah. I think it's just so difficult to comprehend that and get an understanding of time and space being stretched and just warped out of shape. It's just like mind blowing. <laughs> What's a fun amateur uh, project actually is seeing if you can see the effects of dilation um, and you know light warping around objects uh, simply by pointing your telescope at some more distant galaxies. But I can actually capture some things like that with my telescope because you get some galaxies that are behind other galaxies and you see them stretch and they're not stretching because uh, you know, they're shaped that way. They're stretching because the light is getting distorted as it bends going through this gravity source of another galaxy. Yes, that's gravitational uh, lensing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Gravitational yeah. lensing. Um, and it's it's incredible that we are able to actually just observe those effects from here. But, mm-hmm. um, but you can actually also observe them during an eclipse. When the sun's completely blocked, you can look at the stars behind it, and then you can measure that those images of stars against you know taken you know during like six months later when the sun's on the opposite side of the sky you can take the same picture of the the area and see the stars have actually shifted positions okay they didn't they didn't move they just just the sun's gravity just yeah walked it around yeah cool it's incredible (laughs) i saw you had a photo of the full moon as well recently we went out with um my dad's uh telescope as well just to have a look because i wanted to kind of get a bit of an experience of what it's like um and i was surprised how fast actually you don't think of this moon as moving quickly through the sky but when you're training a camera or something on it it's it's whizzing by um oh yeah yeah it made me think of with warren delarue actually he um, made a clockwork device for his um 
his telescopes because he said it was really hard to find somebody who would actually stay up all night to uh, take photos and kind of manage the the instruments with him. Um, but he said it was really hard to capture because it's not kind of a smooth kind of motion. Um, so I guess you suffer from the same thing, trying to keep what you're photographing actually in in the lens. Well, for me, it's easy. It's because I use equipment that's designed to keep it in frame. Um, the tr a tracking mount is the most important piece of equipment for an astronomer or astrophotographer because it compensates for Earth's rotation. Okay, uh, yeah. That's, that's one of the most important things. So when I'm shooting uh, the moon or the sun or whatever I'm doing, I really need it to track properly because I'm shooting like little mosaics. I'm capturing little pictures of the surface you know, as I, as I go to build, you know, one big one. And if it's not tracking perfectly, it's really hard to find my, my next spot. <laughs> um, you know, cause I'll take a picture and then say, Oh, was that crater in the frame? Was it not in the frame? I got to move a little bit. It's even harder on the sun because all the yeah. features look the same on the sun uh, with the exception of when there's active regions on it. Uh, but the spicula, I can't tell one chunk of spicula from a different chunk. of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I actually just uh, shared a new sun image today. You should check it out. Um, the sun actually looks like it's making a face. Yeah, we saw that we had a look just before we that? started. This. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like a little grimace or something. Uh, but I, I joked that it was because we we touched its corona for the first time. Uh -huh. So it's embarrassed. <laughs> um, but that's actually the biggest active region I've ever photographed on the sun. It's it's huge. It spans mm. about one th one third the length or the the face of the sun um and the diameter of the sun is you know eight hundred thousand miles so it's massive <laughs> um yeah it's just massive it's just it, absolutely massive this is what two hundred fifty thousand miles wide something like that uh just this absolutely massive active region on the sun just created by the magnetic field going crazy and uh, pulling up solar material and flinging it into the atmosphere absolutely in mind-boggling physics are happening yeah do you have to be worried about a uh, massive corona ejection soon coming our way and uh, frying everything? You know, I I try not to think about that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, so so here, here's the thing: like it's inevitable; it will happen. Yeah. Uh, no matter. I mean, if it, it happened in human time scales before, you know, in the the Carrington event in the late 19th century, mm -hmm. uh, you know, fried telephone lines, and you know, we're lucky that happened when our infrastructure wasn't. Um, you know, wasn't so abundant as it is today, where the electricity is covering every aspect of our lives. Everything's got everything's got a circuit here. Yeah. Um, if if we got blasted with enough energy, it will set us back to the Stone Age. Um, and I think right now we're so dependent on it, it would impact us much harder than it did back in the Carrington event. Um, I don't know how I would function without electricity. I mean, I would. I'd yeah, probably just go, okay, I guess I'm going to starve then. <laughs> I don't know how to, <laughs> so, and, and I honestly think it is inevitable. Um, it will happen. So, you know, my advice, my advice to anybody is to say, you know, make sure you have a couple months worth of food stocked. At any given time. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I'm not a doomsday prepper. I don't think zombies are going to invade us, but I do think <laughs> some kind of celestial event disrupting our electrical grid. It's very plausible. It could happen. Mm -hmm. It could definitely happen within our lifetimes because it's, it happened not that long ago already. Yeah, it's 1859, the Carrington event. Um, it's actually, that's when Warren Delarue, it was 1860, where he was asked to start um, every day photographing the sun if he could to track this activity. Um, yeah, so it's just a couple of generations away, really. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, that's nothing on a, on a human time scale. Yeah. You know, 150 years is nothing. Mm-hmm. So there was... Uh, yeah, um, it could definitely happen in our lifetimes. Was it? There's... Um, Kind of a common thought now that nobody alive today could make a pencil. Just the process to make a pencil yourself is just so complex having to grow trees and then cut them down and then make the wood and then uh, the graphite lead in there. And just, just the entire process is too complex. Something as what we think as basic or simple as a pencil is beyond our capabilities if we were to lose the infrastructure that we have. So, yeah, how do we come back from that? I would use, uh, I would use coal. <laughs> yeah <laughs> a little bit of charcoal <laughs> a little bit of charcoal work yeah so um, there'll be plenty around after the fires yeah <laughs> there's there's much more modern examples of lost technologies as well but really the moment there stops being a commercial demand for an object it's our ability to manufacture it's lost mm. you know the the, the I mean, what we 
you know, everything we use involves tooling of machines and it involves logistics to transport parts for it. And, you know, that happens a lot with, you know, electronics, happens with cars. Um, a very famous example is actually this, the Saturn, uh, the Saturn V uh, rocket that got us to the moon. Mm. It's really a lost technology now because there, none of the infrastructure that was used to create that rocket exists anymore. So if, we and I, I see this all the time on conspiracy forums because you know <laughs> conspiracy theorists always look for a reason to validate their worldview. They say, yeah. "Well, um, why why do people say that we can't get to the moon right now if we could in the '60s?" And it's like, "Well, we don't have any of the infrastructure we had it back then. Um, the infrastructure is such an important part of any kind of huge undertaking." And Saturn V was such a massive engineering challenge that it involved millions of moving parts, hundreds of thousands of people to put this thing together. And the moment you know, a couple of decades passed, all that's just gone. We'd have to start from scratch. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we see our TMS launch in 2022. Our TMS one is supposed to go up, I think, July 2022. I don't remember what they, I know it got pushed from this past December, but, uh, but I'm really excited to see, you know, hopefully the Artemis mission continue, which will put, put boots on the moon again for the first time in over 50 years. Yeah, that'd be uh, amazing, actually. And start really getting things going, and people like Elon Musk kind of pushing uh, the boundaries, and um, yeah, wanting to see crazy things up in space. Yeah, uh, I think he's got the full stack Starship uh, pretty much mm. ready to go. I saw a test of the engines. Did you see all that? There's I haven't seen the engine know, all, test. All the all the engines were like gyrating in unison. It's a really <laughs> cool video. Go check it out. Yeah, um, and it just. It, testament to the incredible work they put in developing that rocket but once once that thing's going it's going to really open up the solar system for us um, so i put a lot of uh, a lot of faith in spacex right now to get things done and they're doing a great job mm -hmm. yeah exciting times definitely definitely commercial space travel is here and yep. <laughs> it's going to be here to stay we just had um we just had a billionaire go to the iss um uh, yeah yes I don't remember how to pronounce his name, it's, uh, <laughs> but he's, yeah, he was just in the ISS for, uh, what, 10 days or so and floating around up there. Um, it, people do tend to say, you know, billionaires spending his money to go into space. You know, they, they don't necessarily look at that as a good thing. Um, you know, it's like that many could be used for other purposes, but I'm looking at, you know, what they are is early adopters of technology. You think about like the first people that bought cell phones, you're paying thousands of dollars for, you know, garbage cell phones, just the yeah. rich people that bought them. Uh, and now look at it, it's a, just an integrated part of our society. Everybody has a cell phone and the prices of them came down, they became much more affordable and much more useful. Um, I could see that happening with space travel to where, yeah, it starts with, you know, billionaires just spending money just because they want to try something or they want to do it. But that lays the foundation for, all of us really um it creates de demand in a market for for making those things more accessible so i think we're going to see average guys like you and me go up into space because it will become available um and that could happen within the next couple of decades yeah once it reaches a critical mass um yeah and the prices come down i always think what i want to happen is um we need uh, all the world leaders to go up into space and actually have a look down back at planet Earth and realise that it's just one planet and you can't see any borders there. And uh, that's where I know when the G8 or G7, whatever it is these days, meets, they should be doing it up in space, really, rather than uh, in some You know, it's hotel that, um, the overview effect is what yeah. the astronauts say that they, that when, they, when they go up there and they're looking down and they see how small our planet really is and they're they realize just how incredibly important it is. Um, yep. You know, there's no borders. There's just this beautiful world that we all share. And I, I definitely think everybody could use a little bit of that perspective. Definitely. Yeah. Especially politicians. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I think that's probably a good place to leave it, actually. Mm -hmm. um, on that, so unless you've got anything else you want to say, anything you want to plug as well and... Uh... Uh, no, I, I mean, if you if you want to check out some more of my work, uh, I've got an Instagram, it's cosmic underscore background on Twitter, I'm a James McCarthy. Um, I have a Patreon if you feel like supporting me um, where for $2 a month, you get all of my images in full high resolution. Um, so it's a pretty, uh, pretty cool deal there. But uh, I hope you follow me and check out more of my work. 
Brilliant. Thank you very much. It's been really good fun chatting, actually. Thank you for talking. Uh, likewise. I love it. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Cheers, guys. Okay, bye-bye. See ya. Well, that was really fun. <laughs> Found out lots of new things. Um, and I asked my question of aliens. Your favourite um, question? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that was a really good chat, actually. Um, you can see Andrew's got a real genuine passion not just for his photography, but just for space in general. So really, really interesting. Fantastic getting him on. That was a good surprise, actually. So make sure you follow him on Instagram at cosmic underscore background or his website, cosmicbackground.io, or he's also on Twitter, um, Cosmic Background there as well, I think. So you can keep um, updated. Actually, on Twitter, he was um, at A. James McCarthy. Um, yes, you're right. Wow. What a memory you have, young man. Genius, genius child. Um, Speaking of following people, you can follow us on Twitter at CurieChildPod Instagram at CurieChildPod Facebook at CurieChildPod Our website uh, TheCuriousOfAChild.com And our store where you get awesome merch which you can see in the background of the video if you watch this on YouTube uh, Our YouTube is the Curious of a Child, um, and the store is shop.TheCuriousOfAChild.com and I have a gaming channel, which is the Curiosity of Gaming. Um, very good. And I think you can email very, us, very right? Good. Oh, yeah. Um, hello at thecuriosityofachild.com. And that will come to me, so you can ask us questions. And please, 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 if you enjoy this, uh, just leave a review somewhere where you uh, do your reviews. Because it, it makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside and be a beautiful <laughs> Christmas gift. Um, yeah, and make sure you follow or subscribe to the podcast, please. Hi, I'm Travis. And I'm Serge. And we are the hosts of Now That's Interesting Podcast. Here we talk about the topics that catch our interest and hopefully spark your curiosity to dig deeper into the world around you. We go into enough detail to get a better understanding of the topic we cover. Say just a bit above your average pub chat. We talk about everything from conspiracy theories here on Earth to rovers on Mars and everything in between. Find us on whichever platform you get your podcast fix. Goodbye from us. I don't have to do the refurb, but not again.